Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, February 16th, we're studying Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain to pray, and there he is transfigured before them in dazzling glory. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Luke Zimmerman. Pastor Zimmerman serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is good to be back on Sharper Iron. As we get started this morning, Pastor Zimmerman, let's talk context. Where has Luke been? What's he been talking about leading up to this pretty important text, hopefully a familiar text, that we've got in Luke 9 today? Okay, so if you would have our listeners uh, take out their Bibles and they open to Luke chapter 9, uh, you will see that Jesus has been um, working to um, perform a couple miraculous actions. Uh, in one of the biggest incidents in chapter 9 is the feeding of the 5,000. So that's, that's like chapter 9, verse 10 and following. And so that's like one of the major miracles that is recorded in all of the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all refer to the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, following that is you have um, the confession of Christ by Peter. And that's an important event that the Synoptic Gospels record. Um, that, so you will see that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So when we're looking at this in Luke's Gospel, is that we are presented with Jesus asking a question of his disciples, uh, who do the crowd say I am? And the disciples, you know, report what all sorts of people are thinking about him. And then Peter makes the statement, you are the Christ of God. And so that revelation of Jesus being the Messiah comes in, a, in, a, in an explicit way here. It's, it's made very explicit uh, where that testimony is given. Now, now the things Jesus had been doing uh, was, was laying that out. You know, the miracles he was performing was laying it out. Uh, the preaching that Jesus did in some of the synagogues in the Galilean cities was laying that out. And now we finally get this, like, explicit statement testifying that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord's Messiah. And then Jesus kind of astounds people by saying, and that means I'm going to have to die. See, Jesus follows up that confession that Peter makes that he is the Christ. Jesus follows that up with a passion prediction, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then he tells his disciples, his followers, if you're going to follow after me, you need to deny yourself and, and take up your cross and follow me. That's maybe not what had been expected 
of the Messiah, but it is what the Lord had foretold in various places in the Old Testament about what his Messiah would do, that his Messiah, his Christ, would suffer, because that suffering is going to accomplish a great thing. It's going to accomplish the salvation that the Lord had sent his Christ into the world to bring about. So following that passion prediction that followed the confession that Jesus is the Christ, we now come to this transfiguration of Jesus, where his identity is going to be revealed in another way. Not really by a miracle being performed, not really by what a person is going to say about him, not even really what Jesus himself will say concerning his identity, but revealed in an event that's got all sorts of strange and magnificent things ha happening, including appearances of Old Testament figures, uh, changes in the way Jesus looks, and then a testimony that's going to come from God the Father himself. Yeah, I'm glad you, you said that there at the end about it's not really a miracle. It's not teaching like Jesus has been doing, say, in the synagogues, but this is an event. Maybe we—this uh, is a, traditionally a text for the season of Epiphany, isn't it? I mean, that's that's what we're seeing. This is a revealing of who Jesus is, but in a way that's—well, as you said, I mean, just kind of a little strange. I, I think we can say that. It's, it's very unique in what happens, and sometimes, I mean, just picturing it in my mind, this is a pretty incredible event, but it is an epiphany, a revelation of who he is that I think we're meant to attach to those words that he's just spoken about that surprising nature of who he is and what he's come to do as the Christ in, in suffering and death. Absolutely. And in our liturgical calendar, it is kind of a capstone on the epiphany season. It kind of, you wrap up the epiphany season with the reading of the transfiguration event. And that's kind of like a sort from what I recall, kind of a Lutheran invention, if you will, with the liturgical calendar, putting it at the tail end of the Epiphany season. Um, I believe it was also celebrated, and I think the Swedish Lutherans still do it, where they kind of celebrate it in August, in, in, in the summer. Um, yeah, but for most of us, it, it, it is something that we celebrate at the end of the Epiphany season. And then in terms of like the rest of Luke's gospel, if you want to talk about the setting there, is that after this magnificent event that reveals Jesus' identity in this very unique way, it really then sets the stage for kind of the remainder of the gospel. Because what, what now is going to happen is uh, we're going to see this at the very tail end of Luke chapter 9, or, or very close to the end of Luke 9, uh, Luke 9.51, where the statement is made, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's a key thing, because now, after these revelations of his identity, he is now headed to Jerusalem to make good on that identity, to fulfill it. Um, and really, kind of the rest of Luke's gospel has that direction, uh, which, you know, is good, because when you think of like the liturgical seasons too, in many ways, that's what the season of Lent and then Holy Week is really all about. Yeah, I, I think, I do think that the way the, the church year goes, that, that there is a similar thing that 
that it mirrors what happens in Luke, as you said, that you have this epiphany of Jesus in all of his glory, and then he goes to his cross. That's the focus starting at the end of chapter 9. Similarly, in the church year, we see him in all his glory before we take that that similar journey in repentance through the season of Lent and into Holy Week to watch him go to his cross as well. And I just before we get to the, the text of the Transfiguration, just to to try to connect these things a, a little bit more. This is kind of the way that I've I've thought about it. And you can tell me what you think. You know, Jesus has has just told them, I'm going to go suffer, be rejected, be killed, and be raised. It seems that perhaps the being raised part has kind of gone over their heads and they've really fixated on the suffering part. And of course, after this, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to set his face toward Jerusalem, as you said. It, it strikes me that the transfiguration then serves as a, a, I don't know, a faith builder for the disciples, something that, that for Peter, James, and John, can they can hold on to such that as they see Jesus suffer and die, they can know that the guy who's suffering and dying for you, he's the same one that was transfigured. He, he is God himself who is here, and even though he may not look like it on the cross, that's who he is. He is the glorious one dying there for your sins, such that it, and, and I, again, I know that as the narrative moves, these guys don't really get it. But but as we look at it, we know that as we see Jesus suffering and die, we, we worship the crucified one. We know that the crucified one is God for us. This glorious one has come to suffer, to die for us. And in that way, it I don't know. I think we need to we need to connect these things. Even though Jesus is so glorious here on the mountain, we have to remember that the glorious one on the mountain is the crucified one on on another mountain, the mountain mountain of Calvary. Yeah, that that is definitely a theme that I think we pick up actually very well um, when we celebrate Transfiguration. Um, some of our listeners might recall, like when they go to uh, worship services, divine services, and in, in the communion. Um, service toward the beginning where, where they have this thing that we call like the preface and proper preface. And one of the things that is in that proper preface, which is a, a prayer or a statement, which is kind of tied to the liturgical theme of that week. So when we have that preface for transfiguration, we, we note this statement that Jesus Christ at his transfiguration revealed his glory to his disciples that they might be strengthened to proclaim his cross and resurrection. And with all the faithful, look forward to the glory of life everlasting. It is possible that they may not have quite understood everything when it happened initially, you know, on that mountain. But after, after Jesus goes to that second mountain, after he goes to Mount Calvary, after he dies, after he is resurrected and appears to those disciples again. And then when he goes to the Mount of Ascension, and you know, before he ascends, you'll assign them the task that they are going to be his witnesses, that they are going to they're going to proclaim the work that he's done. They know, you know, the the, the one who died is that one that we saw all his glory, all his transfiguration. All now his resurrection glory, too. And now we are taking that out into the world because that's where we're headed. Meaning, we're going to have a share in this. What, 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 what Jesus revealed about himself as the Christ, what he revealed about the divine glory he possessed, 
is what we are going to be able to see with our own eyes again. We are going to be resurrected with him. We are going to be with him like Moses and Elijah on that mountain were. Um, and that's what we're going to be bold enough to carry out to the world for all these people to hear. So yes, that, that this the one who suffered was God himself. The one who died was God himself. The one who rose from the dead is God himself. Mm. And, and we're in fellowship with him. Mm. Well, I think with that same thought, then, it, it also strengthens the disciples for the suffering that Jesus has told them they will go through. You know, I mean, and we'll talk about this when we, we get there, but they, they couldn't stay on this mountain because Jesus did have to go and, and suffer and die. And the, the glory of the transfiguration, which is a precursor of the glory of the resurrection, that comes after the suffering and death of the cross. And and similarly for the disciples, that, that they would know, okay, yes, we we get to partake of the same glory of Jesus in resurrection, but, but how do we get there? Well, this life following Christ is one of, of carrying our cross as well. And so in, in that sense, I, I think the transfiguration strengthens them for that task, that, that yes, we are following Jesus in all things, in his sacrifice, in his death, in his resurrection. But yeah, sorry, in his sacrifice, in his suffering, in his death, but then into his resurrection. So, that, I mean, it's kind of, it's a, it's a both and, you know, the transfiguration, I think, it strengthens them for the, the suffering that they're going through right now so that they would look toward the resurrection that is to come. Absolutely. Ab absolutely. All right, let's read the text. So we're in Luke 9, beginning at verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. That's our text for today. That's Luke 9, verses 28 to 36. Pastor Zimmerman, let's talk about the setting that Luke gives us. He says, now about eight days after these sayings, we talked about what these sayings are earlier. Jesus has spoken of his own death and resurrection, what it means to follow him carrying the cross. But Luke says it was about eight days after those sayings. That That's a and we've seen this elsewhere in Luke. Sometimes Luke is, is rather imprecise with his, you know, one time this happened. Here it's about, he does give us eight days, but about eight days. What's what's going on with the time marker Luke gives? It's one of these things that kind of makes us wonder if there's more to the saying that he uses or the phrase he uses. Matthew and Mark speak about the transfiguration happening six days after Peter makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ. That, that's in Matthew 17 and Mark 9. 
Luke, the one who says he's he's putting all things in order, right? Yeah. Uh, the one the one who's supposed to be like real detail focused, and and he tends to be, uh, which is one of the reasons why I like his gospel uh, the, the the better, I guess, of the of the four in, in a way of speaking. Uh, they're all good, obviously. <laughs> yes. <that's right. laughs> but, um, uses this phrase about eight days later. So, so you know, out of all the things, why, why that? I mean, yes, I mean, eight is is sort of close to six, but, but why not say like about seven days later, right? Or or about a week later, or why not just say six days later? You know, which which uh, is is a precise statement. Well, it, it seems that there might be something that Luke is trying to make a connection here um, between things that are going to be happening in Jesus' lifetime. Um, that there perhaps is a connection that should be drawn between the transfiguration of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, which Jesus had mentioned you know, it's not just that this event happens about eight days after Peter makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ. It's also about eight days after Jesus makes that passion prediction that says he is going to die and also be raised. And it's interesting that... Um, some of our church writers in the past picked up on that about eight days later phrase. In fact, as I was uh, looking through some of the texts um, that I have in my library uh, prepping uh, to talk about this uh, pericope, I ran across this uh, little quotation from Ambrose, one of the uh, early church writers. And he says, you may know that Peter, James, and John did not taste death and were worthy to see the glory of the resurrection. It says about eight days after these words, he took those three alone and led them onto the mountain. Why is it that he says eight days after these words? He that hears the words of Christ and believes will see the glory of Christ at the time of the resurrection. The resurrection happened on the eighth day, and most of the Psalms were written for the eighth. It shows us that he said that he who, because of the word of God, shall lose his own soul will save it, since he renews his promises at the resurrection. Now, that's, that's, that's a bit of a mouthful, but it, it's the idea that when Jesus says, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise to life again. And then he says his disciples are going to take up their cross and lose their lives for his sake. But by doing so, they will actually gain their lives. The only way this is going to really be tied together, the only way this is really going to happen is that this same Jesus is going to die and rise to life again so that those who believe in him and place their trust in him will also be able to die and be raised by him again, which is really trying to make a connection between what the resurrection, what the death and resurrection of Jesus is going to accomplish and kind of what he is previewing for his people at the transfiguration about that. This is their destination too, or this is their end too. 
So when, when Luke says about eight days, he's saying, he's, he's making a theological point much more than a chronological point, it would seem. And again, the, that theological point would be to invite us to connect the glory that we see here in Jesus' transfiguration with the glory of his resurrection and then the promise of resurrection for all who trust in him. Now, Pastor Zimmerman, just to, to make that pretty clear, we're, we're doing that connection based on the number eight. And within the, the quote that you read from Ambrose, Ambrose said that the resurrection happened on the eighth day, which maybe isn't a as familiar a way of speaking uh, for some of us. Why is it that, that Christians have talked this way in the past? Why do we talk about the eighth day being the day of resurrection? Well, yeah, that's a great, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, we, we, we can maybe assume everyone knows that. You know? <laughs> that's, that's a bad assumption. Um, it's, it's a way of almost kind of like speaking that, um, if, if we kind of think back to the creation account, and we talk about the Lord makes everything, right? And it's, you know, day one, day two, day three. And then you get to like seven. So the, the week has got seven days, right? But the fallen world is really botched up now. Mm. And, and the Lord promises that he is going to make restoration of this fallen creation. That's really that's really what um, that's really what his Messiah, his Christ, is sent into the world to do. And kind of when he accomplishes it, it's like there's a new era or a new age that starts. Not in the weird new age ideas that people have. You know, we we talk about that, but you know, there's there's like a new time, a new a, a new era dawning. A, a, Almost in, almost you could almost say like a new world that is being brought in, that the work of the Christ that He accomplishes by making atonement for sin, uh, by taking the curse of death upon Himself, but not because He deserved it, uh, but taking what He didn't deserve, and being our great substitute. And then being raised from the dead because he did not commit any sin, but bore sins that weren't his own. And now that he's raised from the dead and opens up new life, he opens up the way to everlasting life. He opens up the way into the time that the Lord foretold, like in the prophets, about like the, a, a new creation or a, a new heavens, new earth. The, these, these concepts that we see in the scriptures, it's almost like we're we're starting a new week, if you will, or um, and it's it's not it's like a week of recreation almost, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Hmm. Right. So so eighth day is the idea is that we're picking up after the first seven days of creation. Now the eighth day, that's the day of the new creation. And I think I can't remember mm -hmm. if if we've talked about it here in a previous episode. But I've heard it suggested, and I think this is an interesting thought, that when you read in Genesis 1 and 2, the account of each day, you know, days 1 through 6, you get that refrain, there was evening, there was morning, the mm -hmm. blank day. But then there's not that same refrain on day 7. There's not, there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. Almost leaving it open-ended, giving you a hint already there in, in Genesis 1 and 2, even before you get into the fallen sin, that, that there is an eighth day coming. And, and Jesus brings that into effect in his, 
in his new creation. And and yeah, I mean, you're, you know, mm-hmm. you're talking about this new age or this new era that has broken in. I, I do think that's the way that we, we want to talk about this. And maybe the, the you know, we, we talk about this in the creed, the life of the world to come is, I think that's how the right. Nicene Creed. Well, that life, that new age where there is no death, that has already kind of broken into this present age in Jesus. And, you know, sometimes we as Christians will talk about this, the now and not yet, that we have that eternal life right now in Jesus, and yet there's there's more still coming for us because our bodies haven't been raised. And so when we see Jesus being transfigured on the eighth day, again, that's the, the connection. We're getting a glimpse already of that new age, that new era, that, that recreation that starts with Christ and then will be given to all those who are in him. Absolutely. And I think that's what uh, uh, John uh, picks up in, in 1 John 3, where he talks about, you know, we are God's children now. That's true. Um, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You know, that, that what we're looking forward to is the time when that whole new era just fully comes on the scene. Uh, when Christ returns in his glory and ushers all his people into that, and they get to see him with their own eyes, and they don't see him veiled, they don't see him in humility, but they see him in his full glory, and the transfiguration gives us a preview of it. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that verse from 1 John in, because of, of the four evangelists, John does not record the transfiguration within his gospel account. There is that scene in Revelation chapter 1 where Jesus is is pictured in this dazzling white that, that some have speculated maybe that's John's, quote, version of the, the transfiguration. You know, he's showing the transfigured transfigured Jesus in his glory. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like there in 1 John 3, he's reflecting on on the transfiguration too. You know, we shall be like him, we shall see him as he is, made full then in our resurrection on our eighth day. So that, I think that's the eight days. Man, we've talked about the first verse, Pastor Zimmerman. We need to take a break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Luke chapter 9 with Pastor Luke Zimmerman. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, February 16th. We're studying Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36 with Pastor Luke Zimmerman. He serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, prior to the break, we talked about the eight days, about eight days. Luke invites us to connect Jesus' transfiguration to his resurrection and the glory that we too will share in him on the last day. Now, after those eight days, what happens? Jesus takes with him Peter, John, and James, three of his disciples, often called the inner circle. They get to witness some of Jesus' events apart from the others. That's what's happening here. 
Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, that's when everything happens. We've seen Jesus praying often in Luke, and when something, when he's praying, something big often happens. Something big happens here. Pastor Zimmerman, tell us what happens. What should we be picturing? What What is Jesus' transfiguration that happens to him here? The biggest kind of thing is we want to think of this as the way he looks. His physical appearance changes. So we probably want to talk about the, the his face uh, changing. Uh, that's that's what Luke mentions that his face being altered, meaning it looks different. And then the clothing is just like it's like flashing um, to, to talk about dazzling, um, uh, almost kind of like the idea of like when lightning flashes in the sky and uh, and you see that just like just brightness uh, that is. Uh, Almost like your eyes can't almost bear it, right? You know, it's not quite like looking into the sun, but it, it can get pretty close, especially in the real, if you have a real nice dark sky that that, uh, and and you see one of those big bolts of lightning, and that's that's what's um, that's what's being displayed out of his appearance. Now, normally, when you think of a person uh, walking around on the earth. And even if they're wearing like nice white clothing, we wouldn't talk about it being dazzling or, or, um, flashing white. Um, but Jesus is. So what is happening here is that we are seeing, um, or at least the three who were up there on the mountain are, are, are noticing this glory that is coming from Jesus. It's like the, the glory he possesses as the Son of God has been demonstrated in some of the actions that he's performed already. I mean, that, that, that's why he could multiply the fish and loaves. That, that's why um, he could, you know, heal the sick and, and things like that, uh, cast out the demonic and, and, and the like. But now it's not being displayed in like an activity that shows power, but you're almost kind of like seeing the, just the raw power and glory itself that, that's just kind of like emanating from him. Hmm. Um, and in Luke's gospel and also in the book of Acts, you have a couple places where Luke uses the idea of bright whiteness as a way of depicting heavenly things uh, in a way that we humans can kind of understand it. Remember, it's like uh, what is being seen is being put into words to try to describe it. Because uh, we don't have a picture, we don't have a videotape here. <laughs> um, although you have to wonder if we really could actually take a picture of it. Um, but in a couple places that, that in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts, like the, uh, the angels who show up at uh, Jesus' resurrection, like their apparel is dazzling. Um, the, the men in the white robes, when Jesus is ascended, and then uh, the two men appear to the apostles down below. Um, Jesus talks about that when the Son of Man uh, in his day, is going to be like the lightning that flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other. And, and this idea of shining garments, shining uh, figures, shining people, dazzling white stuff, 
also is seen in a couple other scriptural texts outside of the Lucan texts um, uh, that talk about uh, things with like apocalypses, you know, seen or revelations of the heavenly, like in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. So kind of the idea is that that is when this glory is emanating from Jesus, it really shows um, not by necessarily an action, but just by his being that he is divine or tied to the heavenly things. And it's not a reflection. You see, I, I know sometimes we, I think um, when we celebrate transfiguration, we sometimes read from Exodus um, in one of the Old Testament readings. It talks about like when Moses came down from Mount Sinai that he had to wear a veil um, because his face had been like, you know, uh, changed by being close to God's glory. But that's like, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I was like a divine sunburn, if you will. <laughs> um, OK, that's that's because he got like close to God's glory and it had an effect on him. It's reflected. OK. What's coming out of Jesus is not a reflection. It's just what he is. It's coming almost like out of him, out of his being, out, out of his essence of being divine. I like that. Divine sunburn from Moses. That's good. But but that's not what's happening with Jesus. This is his own glory shining forth from him. And I think that that is a very key point, particularly when a couple people show up. You mentioned Moses. He's there with him. So in, in verse 30, Luke even draws our attention. Behold. Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So there's a couple of things I think we need to talk about with these verses, Pastor Zimmerman. One is the two men who show up, Moses and Elijah. What what does their presence signify? Should, do, we, do we know? What can we say about that? And then particularly what they're talking about, Jesus' departure. Those are two things I think we need to pick up from these verses. Okay, so Moses and Elijah... Um, are key figures from the Old Testament. Uh, Moses, we might say, is like the the key figure of the Old Testament. I mean, we, we right, the first books are the books of Moses. Uh, Moses is the one through whom the Lord gave deliverance to his people, uh, taking them out of Egypt, bringing them back um, to the promised land or right to the footstep of the promised land. Uh, Moses doesn't go in. Uh, Moses is the one who is, you know, he is an intercessor. He um, is kind of like a priest. He's also kind of like a ruler or king. He's kind of like a prophet, too. You know, the, these uh, roles are kind of all tied up in one person, prefiguring or foreshadowing what the Messiah would be. You know, we can think of it that way. And, and in that law, in the Torah, is you have uh, salvation laid out in the Old Testament. Uh, God's covenant, what he's going to do, uh, his deliverance, how he, how he brings forgiveness to his people who commit sins. So, well, those are all tied up in the book of Moses. And then Elijah is one of the chief uh, prophetic figures of the Old Testament. And so one of the things that we might think of Moses and Elijah being there is that they kind of represent, if you will, those Old Testament law and prophets, the Torah and the prophets, the books of Moses and the prophets. And in those, in those texts, in those ways that the Lord spoke to his people, delivered information to his people, 
he included predictions about his Messiah, his Christ, and what his Christ would do. And so Moses and Elijah kind of representing uh, the law and the prophets is going to be key because when they're holding this conversation with Jesus on the mountaintop, Luke tells us the content of their conversation. He says, these Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory, they were speaking about Jesus. Well, we translate it as departure. Uh, literally, it's the, it's the Greek word exodus or exodon in, in, in the accusative, um, which is an interesting term. Because we hear like Exodus and we think, oh, yeah, that, that's that book in the Old Testament. And you, know, you got the plagues and the Red Sea crossing, the Sinai commandments, uh, uh, the tabernacle being built, you know, all, all those things. But it's kind of like also kind of talking about a way out or a journey out or a departure. And if we want to talk about that, what is Jesus' departure? What's Jesus' exodus, if you will? Um, what's his path or journey? Well, Jesus kind of spelled that out already. Uh, in the Passion Prediction, he spelled it out. He says, this is what the Son of Man is going to have to do. And when Jesus says, this is what the Son of Man is going to have to uh, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised, he's not actually telling a novel thing. He's not, he's not like invented an agenda for himself, but rather he's stating what had been said in the law and the prophets. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, right, he says he, he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, fulfilling the law and the prophets is not just saying, oh, I'm going to do all the commandments um, as part of it. Uh, it's, it's not just saying, I'm going to act in a faithful way. Well, it is part of that, definitely, but not only. It's also those things that the Lord said his Messiah would accomplish, which include his Messiah's dying and rising to life again for the purpose of bringing salvation to people. Now, Pastor Zimmerman, so Jesus is talking about his exodus with Moses and Elijah. Now, Peter, James, and John are there, but we've lost track of them for a moment. I tell you, 32, they're sleepy. This And it strikes me, and I know this is way ahead in the narrative, but they're, they're going to sleep later on Jesus. Here they're sleeping. They wake up this time. And what a, what a sight that must have been. Can, I mean, can you imagine that? You're, you're, this has happened to me. Get awoken by one of your kids shining a flashlight into your eyes. That's, that's almost what I, what I imagine here. But so they wake up. They're heavy with sleep. They wake up. They see this. And maybe just talk about that before we talk about what Peter says. Yeah. So, so they're in a state of drowsiness uh, of some sort while, while uh, Jesus is having this great conversation with Moses and Elijah and has been transfigured. Um, they do e eventually see his glory. When, you know, when they wake up, they, oh, my goodness, this Jesus you know, is, is completely looking different. Um, but why the drowsiness and why, why the sleeping? Um, you know, I know some of, the, some of them would suggest, some commentators suggest it's like, well, that's because the event took place at night. You know, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I, I, we're not given that detail. But we do know a couple times in the Old Testament where the Lord 
reveals something in a vision to like one of the patriarchs or one of the prophets that in the description of that event where the Lord is revealing something in a vision is that often it is tied to a state of drowsiness or sleep. Mm. Like Abraham has this where in Genesis 15, and of course, Genesis 15 is very important because that, that, that's where you have some of the big promises that the Lord makes about what he's going to do for Abraham and, and make his descendants. Uh, Daniel has this in some of the visions. Um, I believe it's what, is it the, the, the prophet Zechariah that has the night visions, if I remember correctly. Um, there's these things where it happens where the Lord is bringing some news, uh, a revelation to one of the patriarchs or prophets, and it's frequently that they were in this kind of like deep, drowsy uh, kind of sleep state. And perhaps that's what's actually happening here. Not necessarily that they were physically tired, but that this state was put on them as they are going to experience this vision of seeing Jesus as he is. Hmm. That's, I mean, that, yeah, I've never really thought about that, but I, I like that possibility that there's a connection there between the visions of, of the Old Testament that you're talking about and what's happening here. Now, when they do become fully awake, as, as Luke records it, Peter, and we know these words, Peter speaks, which is his tendency. So what does he say? And good idea, bad idea. So Peter's idea as seen... <laughs> Seeing Moses and Elijah in their, in their reflected glory, um, Jesus in his full divine glory, which is properly belonging to him, um, has the suggestion to make three tents, or tabernacles, or shelters, or booze, however you want to translate this word uh, in the Greek, the word skenos, um, that he can, he and we're, He's already, he's volunteering James and John for it too because it's like let us make three tents right you know mm. uh, he's kind of got like uh, I'm the spokesperson and I've got these two other guys who will help me with it um, that that will make one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah and it's um, kind of an interesting idea uh, because there would be places where these three could dwell on this mountain now the the question is like you know. Why? Why does Peter come up with a suggestion? Uh, because Luke tells us that Peter didn't even really know what he was saying. Um, like maybe fully comprehending what his suggestion was. Um, as I was reading it, it did kind of remind me, though, um, uh, you know, in this, because we, we talk about Moses and Elijah are speaking to Jesus about his exodus, mm. uh, his departure. And one of the things that was with, like, the Exodus idea is part of the way that the Israelites would remember the Exodus is they would make tabernacles or tents. There's a festival of booths or a festival of tabernacles, which would be celebrated um, in the fall, in the autumn. Um, and it's a, you can read it in the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 23 tells you a, a little bit about this. Um, and it's like, well, that's one way we can kind of remember Exodus idea, but that's not the Exodus they're talking about here. <laughs> and 
any suggestion of maybe these dwelling places becoming kind of like permanent or at least semi-permanent so that we just all hang up, hang out up on the mountain is not going to be helpful because Jesus has to complete his exodus, his departure, which is going to have to take him down that mountain. He's got to go to Jerusalem. He's got to go through those things that he had predicted, that he had uh, already mentioned eight, around, about eight days earlier, right? He's got to be rejected and be killed and, and die and on the third day rise to life again because that's how he is going to bring a deliverance even greater than the first exodus with Moses, right? It's not Jesus is not just going to take some slaves out of a, a land and bring them to their own like temporal home. He's going to take people who are slaves to sin and free them from that. He's going to take people who are slaves to the fear of death and overcome that. He's going to take people who are slaves to Satan and say, you're not in the domain of darkness anymore. You're in my heavenly kingdom. And he's going to take them into a homeland that's in the new heavens and new earth, right, uh, in resurrection. That's what's going to happen. But none of that will take place unless Jesus goes down the mountain here so he can climb up Mount Calvary outside of Jerusalem. So Peter's suggestion, as kind as maybe he thought it was, isn't any good. Now, Jesus doesn't respond, but someone does. The Father speaks. So take us into the, the revelation. We were talking about this as, as a revelation, an epiphany of who Jesus is. Take us into what happens with the cloud and the voice that speaks and what that teaches us about who Jesus is. All right. So as Peter is, like, suggesting the tent idea, <laughs> God the Father shows what's supposed to happen. And it has nothing to do with staying on that mountain. <laughs> so this appearance of the Father in the cloud, the cloud comes and overshadows them. And all of us who have been familiar with like the Old Testament, we're like, oh, oh, we know about clouds, right? There's times when the Lord shows up pillar of cloud, right? He shows up in like the cloud bank that separated the Egyptians from the Hebrews right before the Red Sea crossing. Uh, he shows up in the cloud that fills the temple uh, when it's dedicated, right? You've got all these sorts of examples of this presence of God manifesting it in this way. It's like Mount Sinai, right, surrounded by the clouds at the top, right? Of course, there you had the lightning and the thunder and stuff like that. Um, so this cloud surrounds and overshadows everything on that mountain because God the Father is making himself present. And this mountain becomes kind of like Mount Sinai. It kind of becomes like the tabernacle. And in this, now the Lord speaks. And when the Lord speaks, he speaks authoritatively. And what he tells the people on that mountain, what he tells Peter and John and James, is that this Jesus that they're seeing in his glory, this Jesus who's standing there, that is my son. 
that's my chosen one. And the directive is not to build a tent for him. It's to listen to him. Now, this chosen one, uh, a, a term that gets used is a messianic term. It's actually a term that only is found in Luke's gospel, by the way, um, kind of interestingly in the New Testament. Um, it's found in the Old Testament, uh, like in the books of Isaiah, talking about the, the chosen one, my chosen, and, and speaking about the Lord's Messiah. And now... In Isaiah, where that chosen one was described by the Lord as having to suffer, this Messiah who would suffer, God the Father now on that mountaintop kind of like, is like kind of pointing to Jesus and saying, that's it. That's the one. That's the one Isaiah was talking about. That's the one the prophets was talking about. That's the one Moses uh, fore foretold. That's my chosen one. He's it. He's the one who's going to be bringing salvation. He's the one who's going to exercise divine power over sin, death, and Satan. But he's going to do it by dying first and then being raised to life. So listen to him. So when he tells you this is what the Christ has to happen, or have, what has to happen to the Christ, he's telling the truth. When he says you're going to have to like take up your cross and follow him, but if you lose your life for his sake, you'll gain it, he's telling the truth. When he says at the at, when he accomplishes these things that forgiveness of sins is going to be proclaimed in his name, and it will be delivered to people, he's telling the truth. And, and, and this is to say that you know when we look at what happens to Jesus when he's rejected and suffering in these things, we might say, you know, is this the one? Because it doesn't look like it when he's going through that. But God the Father has identified him and says, yeah, that actually is. That is my chosen one. Listen to him. It is my son. Listen to him. I love it. I love it, Pastor Zimmerman, especially I mean, what you were saying there about he's telling the truth. It reminded me of, of the way when Peter reflects on the transfiguration in his second epistle, and he talks about how they mm -hmm. saw the divine majesty. But then he, he says, but we've got something even more sure than that, the prophetic word. I mean, what a, what a great connection there that we can listen to Jesus and know that he's telling the truth because of what happened here at his transfiguration. That same thing is true for us as, as we go through this life following Jesus, carrying our cross, to know that he is telling the truth. We can listen to him and know that our faith has been placed in the right one. What a, what a fantastic promise. We've got about four minutes here, Pastor Zimmerman. There's one verse we haven't talked about, the mm -hmm. response. Take us into that. Give us anything that we need from that last verse, and then help us to wrap things up and, and see the gospel from the transfiguration of our Lord. Okay, so the voice of the Father rings out, and once that gets completed, identifying Jesus as his chosen one, his son, the vision ends. And Jesus is there alone now. No more Moses, no more Elijah, no more clouds surrounding everything. The, that vision that was revealing his identity has accomplished its task. That purpose has been accomplished. Now it's time for Jesus to fulfill that identity. So Peter, James, and John don't actually talk about this. Now, now that becomes clear if you read some of the other gospel writers, like Matthew, where he actually tells them, and Mark also says it, that they were not to speak about this until after his resurrection. And that's important, because the vision was a testimony about Jesus' identity as the Messiah. 
But that identity is not completed, is not fulfilled until he goes down to Jerusalem and has these things of his exodus happen to him, of his departure. That's when you will fully know that he is the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Son, his chosen one. And then that proclamation of Jesus' full identity is authorized. In fact, we might see that in the end of Luke's Gospel, that when we get to the end of our series here on Luke's Gospel, where you're going to have Jesus with the Emmaus disciples and Jesus with the Twelve, um, where he says, you know, these things had to happen. That Christ had to suffer these things, then enter his glory. Um, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, everything written in them had to be fulfilled. And when it is, then you can go out and proclaim it authoritatively because I'm going to empower you to do it. I'm going to authorize you to speak this way about me, about all the things I accomplished as the Christ, and that's where salvation is found. Yeah, and, and now the church still has that authoriz- authorization to go out to proclaim this good news about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, the one who's accomplished his exodus for you and for me, for all sinners, that we see this foreshadow here at the transfiguration of our Lord. Pastor Luke Zimmerman is pastor at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, helping us today with Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Pastor Zimmerman, Thanks for being our guest today. Very welcome. Glad to do it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 9 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.